So as you're reading through Proverbs, right, we've been going through the series and looking at different topics and different things going on. And here's a couple of Proverbs. And you might find some others that are like this as you go through Proverbs. I like these two kind of say the same thing in, in backwards order, right? First one, Proverbs 12, 7. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. On the second one, it kind of flips it. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Right, so we can read these and maybe as you read through Proverbs in your daily quiet times and coming before the Lord, you maybe come across these verses or ones like it. And when we read these, right, it's easy to agree. We look at these verses and we go, yeah, 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 I like that. I like that idea. The good are raised up and the wicked are cast down. That sounds right and good. And it is, right? We go, okay, we think about this maybe in terms of, uh, of, of good fruit. Good fruit from my good works. Yeah, well, you do good works and you're going to have good fruit. You do bad works and you're going to have bad fruit. Okay, that makes sense to me. Or we can think of it, uh, of God as being just. We've talked about God being just a lot this year. And we go, okay, so God is just and he's ultimately going to set the scales right. Even though in the moment, sometimes it might seem like, ah, oh, this wasn't a fair thing or, you know, one way or the other. God's going to set the scales right. God is just. And we go, okay, that's good. He's ultimately going to do that. And I think basically everybody in the world probably agrees that righteous people are good and wicked people are bad. Right? If that's not what you believe, if you think something is up, you know, maybe something's upside down, we, we ought to talk about that. I think probably everybody agrees with that. But when we go to the New Testament, there's a verse that sheds a little bit of different light on this here. And it's in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. And Paul, he's actually quoting from two passages in Psalms. And he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Wow, doesn't that seem a little bit contradictory? we got the righteous being lifted up and the wicked put down, but then it turns out nobody is righteous. And nobody is good. So if this is true, none are righteous, none are good, none are raised up. All are cast down. That's bad news, isn't it? This is the bad news. Each one of us, every single one of us, is doomed to be cast down because none of us are righteous. That is bad, bad news. That bad news is made clear in the Bible and it goes on in other places and we're not going to do a message today on the doctrine of hell, but it's there. All are destined for eternal separation from God and the torment of hell. That's the truth from the Bible. And we can have that discussion another time. And you go, oh man, this is a bummer. But I love this quote from good old R.C. Sproul. He says, the gospel is only good news when we understand the bad news. And so we're going to talk about the good news today. We're going to talk about grace, but we've got to understand, hey, there is bad news. And that bad news is that none are righteous. And fortunately, right there in Romans 3, Paul gives us the good news. He says, yeah, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So according to this, how are we made right with God? We're made right with God by his grace alone. And how does he give his grace? He gives it freely. He gives it to us freely. We sang about that this morning. This is the most amazing doctrine. This is the central message of the Bible. This is it. This is the main thing. This is the greatest news on earth. Not a single one of us can be righteous by a thing that we do. 
Not a single one of us can be made righteous by a thing that we do. We are only made right with God because he gives us a free gift. And that free gift is letting Jesus take the penalty for my sin. All I have to do is receive it. Isn't that awesome? Amen? So that's the good news. And so I love that Jesus spoke in Proverbs, right? So we're looking at the book of Proverbs. We think Jesus spoke in Proverbs too. And one of the ways he did that was he told stories. He told parables. He's trying to make us think. And one of those most important ones that we're all probably familiar with is the story of the prodigal son. We all understand that as a, as a proverb. It's, a, it's very important. But at the heart of this proverb is God's grace. God's grace is right there at the heart. And this proverb shows us how God's grace works. It shows us how we can be raised up instead of cast down. It shows us how the gospel works. But it may not be exactly in the way that we think about. Because see, when I say grace, that may stir a few different reactions in us, right? A couple different reactions. One of them is this. We go, yeah, God's grace is for those who help themselves. And I think we can laugh. You know, we all hear that. Oh, that's not actually in the Bible, right? Because that's not actually in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. That's not there. That's not true. But we can think that, oh, God's grace is for those. You get God's grace when you help yourself. Another thing we can do is say, oh, God's grace just lets me do whatever I want to do. God's grace. I've got grace. So I can do whatever I want to do. But Jesus used this parable, this parable of the prodigal son, he used it to show us that both of those miss the mark. Both of those don't describe how God's grace works. So today I thought, let's look at that parable. Let's look at the parable of the prodigal son. We're going to read it here together, even though it's familiar to all of us, I'm sure. We're going to read it together. It's in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. I got it on the screen here. You can follow along. Jesus said... There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. 
this other brother who was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to, cel- it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So that's the parable. And we're all familiar with it. It's popular even in secular circles, I know. And so we're going to examine it. And so let's start today with this examination with something to help us get a deeper understanding. And that thing would be the context. Who's Jesus talking to? Who's, who is he talking to? We go back a few verses to verses 1 and 2 of that chapter, and it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Right? So it shows us that Jesus was talking to two kinds of people. He's speaking to two kinds of people. The first group he's speaking to are the religious people. Right? The Pharisees. They show up and they're listening to him and they're grumbling. So who were the Pharisees? They were a sect of Jews. They were Jewish leaders. They were guys who were considered very pious. They adhered to the law. They emphasized strictly holding to what not only the Old Testament law said, but all these oral traditions that had been added on through the centuries in Judaism. So there were those guys. It says there's the scribes. The scribes were teachers. The scribes really, they took the law and they wrote it down. They just sort of transcribed it. That's why they were called scribes. And they also made commentary on all of that. Everything we have is the Old Testament. They would write it down. They would make commentary on it. So they were known to be people who understood it because they spent their time writing it down. So really, when he's talking to religious people, he's talking to people who would consider themselves morally upright. They would say, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. That was the first group. The second group were what we call the irreligious people. Now, if you ever want to find, try to find an image on the internet of irreligious people or sinners, that may not be a good web search to do. But I got a picture of Jesus eating with some sinners. Apparently, I guess these guys are the sinners. I don't know. But who were the sinners, right? Well, it says there in verses 1 and 2, it says they were tax collectors. And you go, what's so wrong with that? Some of you might even work for the IRS. I don't know. And that's okay. Well, in those days, (laughs) a tax collector was kind of the lowest of the low. Because they'd gone to work for the Romans. And the Romans were the occupiers. The Romans were the bad guys. And these were Jews who went to work for the Romans to take the money away from other Jews and give it to the Romans. They were considered the traitor of traitors, the worst of the worst. And he says sinners, and so it didn't go into that completely, but if you'd ask who the sinners were to those religious people, they'd say, oh, it's the Samaritans. So those were just people who were kind of outside the circle, who didn't really follow the law the right way. They were, uh, it said there in the passage, prostitutes. Jesus was hanging out with prostitutes and sinners, people who were morally reprehensible. So he's hanging out with sinners. So you go, okay, well, that's great context. What does that mean for us today? Well, I think we could look around us in the world and probably see people who would fall into these two categories, right? Who would the religious people today? Well, there might be some religious scholars and activists who would fall into that category of religious people who are holding on to law and holding on to doing things right. You might think of them as Bible beaters, 
kind of a funny term, but that's what it is. Or you might just think of them as people who are just hooked on church going. It's just a church, I'm a church goer. Okay. Well, what about in the other group? Well, there might be some liberal activists who would fall into that who are like, ah, we just want freedom. We don't want your rules. That group of sinners, people who we go, ooh, all as a culture be like, ah, that person is really you know, bad. There's like people who are very abusive and we go, ah, they've taken advantage of women or they're addicted to drugs or they're addicted to other things. Maybe people who uh, are, are deceivers, not really like used car salesmen, but you know, people who are swindlers, who are out to try to take money from people, that sort of thing. Some people might even say, ooh, immigrants who've come to this country illegally. Maybe they fall into that. They've broken the law and they're, here they are. And we're, you know, they're, they're irreligious people. They're not following the law, right? Now, I want to be really careful here. Again, I'm not making a political commentary and placing judgment on these things. I'm just showing us that, hey, even in our world, we've got people who fall into these categories of religious and irreligious, right? And so we have to note that when you're in these groups, and each of us might even say, well, I kind of fall into that one, or maybe I kind of fall into that one, we can say things about the other group, right? And these people were saying those same things, right? The religious people in that day and today are like, can you believe those morally bankrupt people over there? And then on the other hand, the irreligious people are just like, ah, there go the religious bigots again. (laughs) And so these groups, and Jesus is speaking to these two groups, and he addresses this parable, this parable specifically to these two groups of people. And he shows in the midst of that that there's two different worldviews. These two groups have two different worldviews. They're looking at the world in two different ways. The religious people see the world in a way we'd call moralism. Well, what is moralism? Well, one way they would say it is, we must live up to certain standards to be right with God. Here are the standards. In that day, it was, here's the law. Today, it might be, well, here's the moral code of conduct. We've got to live up to that. We've got to live up to that. In Matthew 23, Jesus describes the Pharisees as, quote, sitting on Moses' seat, end quote, which means the place of creating the law and creating the rules, that's where they sit. Today, someone might say, hey, our society is in decay because people won't observe moral values. Someone who follows, follows moralism is saying, ah, the problem is all out there. It's all of those people who won't follow the rules. They won't observe moral values. They will exclaim there like it says, evil is what is, is, is immorality. What is evil? It's immorality. It's a lack of following the rules. People aren't following the rules. That's what's wrong with this world. Right? You can probably think of, I, I tried to look up a picture to get it, and I didn't. But, you know, church marquee signs that where they put out the little saying, like, you think of those, you've probably seen them on the internet before, they're just like super judgmental, like, oh, you sinners are going to hell, or something, right? And you go, oh, okay. That's where that is, right? And so the biggest heartburn for the religious, the moralists is, you're not following the rules. You don't follow the rules. That's their biggest problem. Well, let's go over to the other side, right? Maybe we're making you squirm here a little bit. I'm sorry if that is. But on the other side is relativism. And relativism is really growing in our world, in our culture today. And it's people will say things like, yeah, we must live up to what feels right. You want to be right with God? You need to do what feels right. You've got to do what feels right to you, really. At least to you. It might feel different to me as we're relative, right? Interesting. In Matthew 21, Jesus deals with some people who are in relativism. 
And he asks them a question. What do you think about John's baptism? And they're kind of like, uh, oh, we don't want to answer this. We don't want to answer that. We don't want to be nailed down to anything. So we don't know. So Jesus himself deals with people who are relativists right there in the Gospels. People today who are relativists would say things like, I need to speak my truth. My truth. It's my truth. It's what matters to me. It's my thing. I need to speak my truth. And then they'll say, evil is rule following. On the one hand, the other people will say, evil is immorality. They'll say, evil is rule following. Or just a lack of personal freedom. Of You're impinging on my freedom with your rules. Right? I was trying to think of what would be sort of the opposite of the judgmental church marquee. And I thought of this last week we were in Seattle. We were in Seattle. It was, of course, June. And June was a certain pride month. And in Seattle, everyone decided we need to put up these flags so that we can say, hey, your rules are oppressive to me. That's really what it was saying. It was everywhere. It was kind of amazing to me. I couldn't even really take pictures of a lot of things because there were just big flags in the way that were sort of waving and saying, hey, your rule following is evil. That's really kind of what it said. And so the biggest heartburn of people who are relativists is people who are imposing on their freedom. I'm free. Your rules impose on my freedom. That's their biggest heartburn. So we go back to Jesus' day, and there was a tug of war going on. Who had the right worldview? The relativists or the moralists? And we kind of see that today, don't we? It's kind of going on all around us right now. Jesus shows those people that they were all in error. They were just committing two versions of the same error. They were both wrong. They were both wrong. The first thing we need to realize here when we look at this parable is that Jesus is using it to give us a clearer definition of sin. See, most of us, when we said, what is sin? We'd go, oh, it's breaking the rules. Right? It's breaking the rules. Well, that's not what it is. And because we sort of have thought that way for a while, our relativistic culture has this backlash against the idea of sin because they go, sin is just breaking rules. But Jesus is telling us sin is not breaking rules. He's saying sin is running from God. Sin is when you turn and run from God. See, the irreligious run from God by tearing up their command. That younger son, he was irreligious. He just wanted to take Jesus' ten, the Ten Commandments, all of the stuff, all the law, all the rules. He wanted to rip them apart and step on them like in this picture and crush them. I want to be free to commit sin. And so he went off and did that, right? And on one hand, the irreligious person is correct. They're actually correct that God has given us freedom. God has given us freedom. He's given us the ability to choose or choose otherwise. When God created us, he chose relationship over robotics. We're not robots. He's given us the ability to choose, and he's given us freedom. And so they're right when it comes to that. See, the younger son, he took what he's given by his father. He goes to his father and he says, give me that. His father goes, okay. And he gives it to him. And what does he do? He goes out and he squanders it. He takes his freedom. He squanders it on reckless living. He runs away from the father by breaking the rules. He runs away by breaking the rules. Now, what about the religious? How do the religious run from God? You might look at that and go, well, I don't get that. They're religious. How are they running from God? Well, they're actually running from God by keeping the rules. I tried to get a picture of somebody hugging the Ten Commandments. The best I could do is Charlton Heston. <laughs> That's what they do. It's like, oh, I got the law. I got it. I'm going to hug it. i got to hug it. That elder son, he says, I have served you, Father. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me whatever. You didn't give me what I wanted. 
that son, that elder son, is using his rule following as a means to exert influence or control over God. That's what he's doing. He's using his rule following to exert control over God. He's saying, I did this, now you give me that. I've earned it. And in that way, he's running from God. See, both sons wanted what? They both wanted their father's treasure. They both wanted their father's treasure. That was unique to both of them. The younger son, he became lord of himself. He became lord of it. He took that treasure, became lord of it by abusing his personal freedom. He said, give me my inheritance. The older son became lord of himself by doing good deeds. Well, I'm going to do good deeds so I can be lord of myself. And now you owe me, father. Give me my inheritance. They're both committing the same error. They're both running from the father. The younger son runs away out of a rebellious exercise of his personal freedom. But the elder son stays away because of his self-righteous rule following. So we can see they're both making the same mistake here. So we've got two kinds of people with two different worldviews committing two versions of the same error. And Jesus steps in and with this parable he shows us there's one solution. Two errors, one solution, one solution. And what is that solution? You guessed it, God's grace. God's grace is the solution for everyone, the moralist and the relativist. How does it work? First, the Father comes to us. Because each one of us is a moralist or a relativist or both. The Father comes to us. We see it with both sons. When the younger son is out and he's far away... He comes out. The father comes running. Before he can even come to him, he comes to him. And then the elder son is staying away, and the father comes out to him. The father comes out to us. Jesus is showing us that God's grace is expressed to us by God first reaching across the divide of our sin into our lives, into our world. It's not, oh, follow the rules first. It's not, oh, repent God comes to us regardless of whether we're religious or irreligious. The second thing we do is we, we do have to repent, but we have to repent of both. Rebellion and rule following. It's not one or the other, it's both. We have to repent of both. And now I think each of us may tend maybe towards one or the other, and maybe as I've been talking about this, maybe it sort of pushes some buttons one way or another, and that's okay. But we all probably realize maybe there's certain things in our own life where we go, actually, I kind of have both of those things going on in my life. And interestingly, when we go back to what I was saying, right there, when Jesus was talking to those people about John's baptism and asking those questions, and they were talking about relativism, do you know how that group of people was? It was the Pharisees. Pharisees were struggling with moralism and relativism, just like we do. We struggle with both of these things. And so in this sense, we need to repent of both our sins and our self-righteousness. We need to repent of exercising our freedom to break God's commands and our self-righteousness to do good deeds, because why? Both are forms of running from God. And what is repentance? We've talked about this before. Repentance is simply changing your heart, changing your mind, and turning away from what you were doing. So I need to repent of my worship of personal freedom. If I'm in relativism, I need to repent of worshiping personal freedom and saying that is the most important thing. And I also need to repent of trying to put God in my debt with my good deeds. Because we know we can't put God in our debt with our good deeds. We can't do it. The third thing we need to do is accept the free gift of God's grace. 
Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For how you've been saved through faith? By grace. By grace you've been saved through faith. And guess what? This grace, it's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works. No one can boast. We've said this before. A gift is not a gift unless what? You receive it. You receive it. You have to receive a gift. It's not a gift unless you receive it. So what does God's grace do for me? It allows me to love God. 1 John 4.19 says we love. Why? Because he first loved us. But most important thing God's grace does is it makes me righteous in God's eyes. It makes me right. It makes me righteous. And that brings us right back to Proverbs. Of where we get to be righteous. So before we conclude with that connection, I wanted to go through one application of this and one thing that maybe gets sparked when we think of the prodigal son, right? Because what's going on here is there's a family dynamic, isn't there? And for those of us who are parents, I know those of you who don't know me, I've got a bunch of kids and a number of people here have kids and when we're parenting, we think about, okay, we got the Bible, we got the Proverbs, it's got directions for us and we come across this verse. Proverbs 22.6. We're probably all familiar with it. Train up a child in the way you should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that seems to apply in some way to this story of the prodigal son. And we're familiar with this, especially parents. And we may have a variety of reactions to this proverb, right? Some of us may say, this means if I do the right thing with my kids, the result is going to be they're righteous people. And that's probably typically parents who are younger, whose kids are still growing up and they're little and they haven't gotten to that. And then some of us may say, man, I raised my kids and I didn't get righteousness from them. So I must have done something wrong. I must have not done my training right. And that's probably older parents, right? People whose kids are grown, and there's a number of us in this room who fit into those categories. And both of those views, I can sympathize with both of those views. And I understand where you're at and how you feel. Today's not a message on parenting. We may get into that later in Proverbs. But I want to draw a connection between this proverb and the prodigal. Because in this story, in this parable, there is a parent... And then this parent has two grown sons, and his two grown sons take two different paths. One goes into rebellion and reckless living and embraces personal freedom and turns away from his parents. The other hadn't do the right thing either. He goes into self-righteous living, he goes into embracing rule following, and he becomes self-righteous. And we just learned from Jesus that neither one of those things is good. Both of them are sin. Both of them are running from God. And so we can kind of come to this story and think about this Proverbs and be like, okay, what about that father? Did he train up his children in the way they should go? Did he do it? Because they didn't go. It didn't seem like they went the right way. And we could debate this, I'm sure. But here's the thing I want to focus on today to encourage you in your parenting. So Jesus doesn't assign any blame. He doesn't blame the father for this and say, well, that lousy father, <laughs> he didn't train up his children in the way he should go. And you know what? Scripture doesn't shy away from that elsewhere. A couple examples in the Old Testament. King David. King David! After God's own heart, it says his son Adonijah, he didn't interfere with him. He didn't train him up the way he should go. Doesn't shy away from that. We think of Eli. 
Eli, the priests, and it says with his sons, they didn't do a good job and it causes all kinds of problems. They, they, it puts the blame when blame needs to go there. Jesus doesn't put the blame on the father in this story. He doesn't do it. And isn't that just a picture of God's grace? Parents, I want you to see that, that there is God's grace for you and your parenting. His grace is so great, it's so perfect, it doesn't need to assign blame. It offers love and forgiveness to you. We don't need to place blame for our kids' decisions on ourselves. And I think we all know there's parents in the world, and I know some of them, and some of you are probably sitting in this room, and you've offered godly parenting to your kids. You've done a great job, and I want to imitate you, and you may be going, ah, some of those kids are not, not walking with God either in a moralistic or a relativistic way. There are also parents who have offered no godly parenting to their kids, but those kids have turned to Christ and are following the gospel and the good news. And all of us parents are going to stand before the Lord and whatever things we do right and things we do wrong, whatever our sins are, they are forgiven. And they're forgiven not because we imparted godly things and did godly parenting, but because we've received the free gift of God's grace. That's what we need to focus on. So my application for parents is this. Let's stop thinking about this the way he should go as a bunch of do's and don'ts. Let's stop thinking about that. Instead, let's think about it as the path of understanding God's grace. Train up a child to understand the path of God's grace, forgiveness of sins, and the right motivation to do good. Trust God in that. And so in the end, as we close here, wherever any of us are, whether you look at your life and you could just sit here today and, and sort of look at your life and say, wow, I, I, maybe I am a little bit more of a moralistic rule follower. I look at the world and I go, ah, those people are just ruining the world with their freedom. Or maybe you're a relativistic rebel and you're like, ah, all those people and their rules and all that stuff, the laws, <clears throat> they're impinging on my freedom. Or maybe you say, yeah, I can have a little bit of both of those things in my life. <clears throat> I want you to remember this. God's grace welcomes you home. It's God's grace that saves us. So that takes us back there to Proverbs twelve seven. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. So who are the righteous? Who are the righteous? The righteous are those who have received God's free gift of grace. Amen? All right, I'll pray and we'll close today. Thanks, God, for your word. God, thank you for your grace. God, I thank you that no amount of exercise of the personal freedom that you've granted me and no amount of following the rules is going to get me right with you. What it takes is you reaching out to me and offering this free gift of your grace. God, I pray for each person here today that each one of us would hold on to that, that we would reject those tendencies to moralism and relativism in our lives. And the way that we operate. But God, I pray especially, Lord, for those of us who have received the free gift of salvation, who are seen as righteous in your eyes, that we would turn and look at others around us through that same lens. And not judge them as moralistic or relativistic, but look at them as someone who is running from God in one way or another. God, that you would impart to us the desire, the will, and the opportunity to share this message of grace and good news with those around us.
thank you for your instructions. Lord, I pray that they would, this would have landed in our hearts in a way uh, that would be accomplishing your work this morning. God, thank you for our church. I thank you for the family. Thank you for the great things that are going on in lives right now. We just praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.